Welcome to our Wednesday night. Um, if this is your first time or you haven't been really a part of the Wednesday night community, uh, this is kind of a laid back time, just a time of, of, of teaching, worship, connection. Um, as we said earlier, please always feel free to get up as we're as we're going and grab some uh, coffee or something to drink in the back there. We're we're in a series looking at some of the like the big life questions that we've wrestled with and all humanity has wrestled with throughout time that, that Jesus gave, I would suggest, the most startling answers to, the most nuanced answers to, not, not simple answers to difficult questions, but, but questions that really seem to impact us where we are, that meet our needs, uh, to the big questions of life. And so this evening we're looking at this question. This is in your bulletin there. Um, what is what we'll call what is the good life? What is the good life? I'm guessing if I asked you to write down on a piece of paper, hey, how would you define that? Like, what would you say the good life is? That we would all have a list of different ideas or elements or components that the good life would consist of. And see, I would suggest that when you think about how our culture answers this big question here, you know, what is the good life? There's kind of two different radical extremes um, of, of, of how this question gets answered. And I'll kind of represent it by this. There's, there's the way that ads represent the good life. Uh, the things that are these, these are the things that, that you should want, which is to say advertisements. And then there's the funeral, the things that are said in an obituary, the funeral version of what the good life is. Let me let me kind of show you the contrast between these two. Dallas Willard talked about this idea. He said that you could see kind of the contrast between sort of the big approaches to what the good life consists in when you read a person's obituaries. And Willard said, rarely do you read things in an obituary like she had a fine figure and a thick head of hair and wonderfully white teeth. Um, or he drove fast cars and earned hundreds of thousands of dollars in his spare time from home. You see the difference between the two answers to what is the good life from ads versus what you have in funerals or obituaries. But see, our ads are filled with promises to give you, and these are the things that many of us kind of pursue, if we're honest, a good portion of our time. The very things that you wouldn't necessarily want listed in your obituary, right? Great looks, great money, great sex, great food, great widescreen TVs, great fill-in-the-blank. All the things that you see the minute you turn on TV or open up a magazine. And see, we want to experience, we want to experience the ad good life. We do. But I want people to think of me as the funeral good life. I want to be perceived that way, but I want my kids, I want my friends, I want my co-workers, I want you. I, I want people to think of me as the funeral good life. Let me ask you to do this. I want you to turn your tables over the next three minutes, and I want you to ask or answer this, this one question here. If you had to decide right now, 
what to go on your tombstone, what would it be? Okay? It might be a one word. It might be a phrase. It might be a sentence. It might be a statement. What would you put if you had to decide right now what would go on your tombstone? I don't mean pizza tombstone. Okay? Don't. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay? On your tombstone. All right? Three minutes and then we'll come back together. No, it doesn't have to be one word. Someone's asking, can, no, it can be more than one word. Jeff, you probably have much more than one word. Okay. Anyone, anyone have a really short answer they can yell out? Any good ones? One word or a short sentence? Did you hear anything at your table that was good? Love. Love. Loved? Okay. What else? Started slow but finished strong. I like it. Any other ones? Say one more time. 
lover of life. I heard, I heard someone say, they're going to put on theirs, I told you I was sick. You've heard that, one. heard that one before. Anytime we think about the good life, you know, these two different, you know, there's kind of the ad version, there's the funeral version. If you were to, even in the ancient world, this question, what is the good life, kind of just plagued people's mind. Everyone talked about it and thought about it. The ancient Greeks, if you would have asked them, they would say, yeah, it's this right here. The ancient Greek said, eudaimonia. It meant great souledness. It, it was to be the great person. Eudaimonia was the idea of, of happiness, a flourishing, all of your life going well, great dignity, great wealth, great reputation, succeeding in life. Including justice and all these other things, but it was it was having sort of having it all eudaimonia was what the good life consisted in. Now, the biblical equivalent for that. Blessed was the word. This is you might think of the great psalm, the very first psalm that starts out the the book of Psalms, the longest book in the Bible starts with this blessed eudaimonia, well-being, happy, good. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked or stand in the, stand in the way of sinners or take the seat in the company of mockers. But the blessed one is one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person, the blessed person, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Okay, so think about it. the blessed person is the righteous person. The blessed person is the honest person. It's the person with the pure life. The person whose life is pleasing to God and they experience prosperity. That was blessed. That was this idea. Shalom was another word that, that kind of colored this idea of what does it mean to live the blessed life. But see, here's, here's the shocking part. Jesus comes along, and in what is his most famous sermon that he ever gave, what we call the Beatitudes, that's what we read in the, in the responsive reading, or we read kind of a version of that this evening. Jesus does something really radical. He says that eudaimonia, he says that blessedness is available to people like the poor. They can still be in this, in this category, in this group. People, um, people who are like at the end of their ropes, they can... They can still be in, in this group. It's available to them. People, people who have lost what is most dear to them in life. Uh, people people who, are, who are, while wanting to be righteous, they know they're not. They know they're nowhere close to that. Those who, who don't really have what it takes to, to scrape and fight to be on top, those, they're included as well. Those who are put down or those who are thrown out, those whose commitment to God may have put them in a, even a worse situation than they were before. The good life, Jesus says radically, blessed, the good, it's available to literally, absolutely anyone. And here's the kind of the shocking part, regardless of circumstances. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what's the determiner of the good life then? Um, if, it's, if it's not what we thought circumstances it's not what the greeks thought it's not what many people even with this concept of blessedness thought so what is it well jesus had this idea and he said okay the good life can only be experienced by 
the good person. See, the focus is, it's not on the exterior. It's not on what you have or what you've accomplished or what you've been pursuing or how you're perceived or any of those externals. He says it's actually, there's this completely different approach to it. And it's this internal, and by person, I don't mean the externals. I mean an internal unseen component to what it means to experience the good life. Jesus says that's a good person. Okay, well, I go, oh, that's, well, that's easy, right? I'll just be a good person. It's really interesting. Um, Jesus said that there's, there's one big problem to you getting there. It's like, it's like this huge barrier to me because I kind of go, okay, I want the good life, whatever that is involved, so I'll just kind of be the good person. And he goes, yeah, but there's a problem. I go, I, no, I know, but I'm going to pursue God. I'm going I'm to love him. I'm going to do what's right. And he goes, yeah, I know there's still a problem. Well, there, there's, there's like this huge barrier thing that prevents us from the blessed life or being the good person. And it revolves around a single word, one single word. I want you to write this down if you have a pen. Um, one scholar wrote that our modern understanding of this single word that I'm going to tell you is, quote, perhaps the greatest contribution of Jesus to human civilization. That's pretty big. <laughs> what is it? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Well, let me ask you a question. On a scale of one to ten, um, how, how big of a barrier to religious belief is religious hypocrisy to people? Scale of 1 to 10, what do you think? Is that like a barrier to thoughtful people coming to faith? Religious hypocrisy? Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? I mean, that might be like number 10. It's a huge barrier. You know, someone might say, you know, why become a Christian when the church is filled with so many hypocrites and, and, and deeply flawed people? There was a book that was written here just recently called Unchristian. And in the book, it describes um, a survey that was taken that said, of, asked all these unchurched people about hypocrisy. And, and, and it was just young adults that they asked. And it said that 85% of these unchurched young adults believed that Christians were hypocritical. I mean, kind of merely hypocritical. Um, Forty-seven percent of young adults who were in the church said, oh, yeah, all Christians are just hypocritical. They believed really the same thing. But see, this is not just a religious issue, really, is it? This is a universal heart condition, I would suggest. Um, there, was a, there was a meeting just a couple years ago of the American Heart Association. It took place in Atlanta, Georgia, and there were, there were 300,000 doctors, physicians, and researchers who, who came together to discuss the importance of low-fat diet and keeping hearts healthy and that sort of thing. But what, what happened, they found researchers as, as they were there, is that during mealtimes, they consumed the same fat-filled fast food like you know bacon cheeseburgers and chili fries at the same artery-clogging high rate as people from every other single convention in the area. And one cardiologist was asked this question, aren't you concerned that your bad eating habits will be a bad example? And the cardiologist replied, not me. I took off my name tag. <laughs> Isn't that great? How many of you would say, that's why I don't have a cross on my car, right? I took it off, right? This idea of hypocrisy, it's not just a religious issue. 
it's a human heart condition that kind of stretches out into every discipline, every area of life. Now, of course, the presence of hypocrites within a movement, whether it be cardiology or Christianity or whatever, it doesn't prove the movement itself is false or an error. Every belief system is going to attract people which, which don't live up to it. That's obvious. Now, it's really interesting. One scholar by the name of Evie Kate noted that our word hypocrite that we use in the modern English comes from a Greek word, hupokates, that, that was used in the theater. Um, it was used for actors. And act, actors would, would uh, this is what an actor was called, because essentially they would wear a mask which would show what character they are playing. So, for instance, um, one actor might be a king in Act 1, and in Act 2, he's a slave. And so the way he would show it is by putting on different masks to show which, which part he's playing. But in classical Greek, this scholar went on to say, the word hypocrite didn't have the same biting, chilling, negative meaning. It wasn't, it, this is a modern idea, or <clears throat> a more modern Idea, And so the question was asked by the scholar, how did this happen? How did a word which just meant actor in ancient Greece come to be something which is one of the worst, really, statements? I mean, it's kind of a pejorative word if you call someone a hypocrite today. Well, in the first century, when Jesus was a young boy, if you were to go back in time and think about that era, one of the great theaters that was, that was built in that day was in a town called Sepphoris. Sepphoris is like less than an hour's walk from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Well, if you think about this, because of their profession, there's a good chance that Joseph, who was a carpenter, and his young apprentice son, Jesus, would have, would have found work constructing building projects in Sepphoris. And Jesus would have, from a very young boy, been familiar with the idea of the stage and the hypocrites or the actors See, the fascinating piece is that it was Jesus's critique of religious hypocrisy that absolutely shaped the modern concept of hypocrisy. When Jesus spoke of the religious deception or kind of the religious falsehood, kind of pretense, putting on posing, he used the term for role playing. He just used the active word, which didn't have negative connotations. And Eva Cate said that it is the New Testament's usage of the word that most shaped our thinking, because there was a unique emphasis. Jesus put a unique emphasis on the inner person, this, the inner person versus like outer, outer behavior, outer, outer life. And so she says this, the concept of hypocrisy is doubtless shaped by the moral tone it received with the emergence of Christianity, where attention to what is hidden from view that's the inside. She said, even often hidden from your own view, is the most important thing. It's paramount. See, there's a public me. Okay? Public me is the one you guys see. <laughs> and we spend a lot of time like image management for our public persona, who we are on the inside. But what, what Jesus pointed out so clearly is that there's also a private me. And the private me, it's, it's, not, it's not visible to you guys. In fact, I may not even know the depths of the private me because it has to do with the heart. And Jesus had this radical idea that no one knows the heart but God. Even oneself can be self-deceived, 
self-deluded. Hebrews 4.13 says this. The writer of Hebrews says, And there is no creature hidden from his, meaning God, from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, Jesus said this, that's most important, the heart, is what matters most. And the condition of the heart is Jesus' primary emphasis. Anytime he ever talked about the good life, meaning the good person, what that looks like, like what the good person is, therefore what the good life, always centered around this idea right here, that it had to do with this internal thing. It had to do with the heart. And so, and so the good person, or the good life, is a person, John Ortberg writes this, he says, it's a person whose heart, whose inner being, is bathed and pervaded by divine love. I love that language. It's a person who, whose heart, whose inner life, is bathed and pervaded by divine love. So the good person isn't someone who just does good stuff, like, you know, you help this and you do that, because that's outward stuff. The good person is a person who, who wants to do good stuff, who wants to pursue the good. It has to do with the wanting. It's interesting, the word hypocrite in the New Testament, it's used 17 times all by one person. No one else in the New Testament uses this word hypocrite except one person, Jesus. There are a few words which are solely used by Jesus, and this is one of them. 17 times Jesus uses it. Evocate says it is clear from the literary records that it was Jesus alone who brought this term hypocrisy and the corresponding character into the moral record of the Western world. Now, here's the irony. <laughs> if you think about it, every time someone criticizes Christians and rightly so, I would say many times or the church for hypocrisy, they're paying tribute to the thinker whose teaching gave us the picture of hypocrisy that shapes our moral understanding 2,000 years later even. So if you've ever been bothered by religious hypocrites, or you know, you've ever wanted to kind of like write just a scathing blog or a letter about how much they, you know, they turn your stomach, you've got to get in line behind Jesus. Because Jesus was harsher than any religious skeptic, any enemy of religion. Jesus was harsher on this one issue that blocks the good person, and therefore the good life, than anyone else in history. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 23 tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. We're just going to read kind of a few selected portions within Matthew 23. This is maybe the most scathing passage that, that we have of Jesus addressing, though he does it several other places. This blocker to what it means to be the good person, therefore live the good life. And he starts out Matthew 23, verse 13, with this phrase, woe to you. Now, let me just say one thing about that. Um, woe to you didn't just mean troubles coming. It meant troubles coming in the form of divine judgment. What he's saying is that God will not tolerate hypocrisy, according to Jesus. Listen to these words. We're going to read some selected portions here. Verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Is it any wonder Jesus made enemies? I mean, that's like harsh. How many times have you heard that passage? You like, you know, your morning devotionals, right? I mean, this is a harsh statement by Jesus. Can you imagine the tension that he would have created in that in that scenario right there? But now here's what you need to think about. Think of the audience for a second. Okay, think of think of who he is speaking to. What stands out to me is Jesus reserves his strongest warnings of judgment and hell not aimed at people outside the community of faith, is it? It's aimed at people within the community of faith, the insiders. See, the Pharisees in our day, you know, it's a caricature. We use the phrase, oh, that's very pharisaical, like a negative thing. That was not a negative thing in this day. And it doesn't even mean every Pharisee was this way. Pharisees were the most respected religious leaders that, that you could possibly think of in your mind. They were admired. Here's Jesus's point. Now, here's the important. Here's the part I don't want us to miss. Because they were the closest to the most fervent for God, loving God. The point is, Jesus was talking about a condition that is a hair's breadth away for anybody who takes God seriously. If I were to say to you, do you take God seriously? Like, is it important? Like, is your faith? And you go, yeah. Then Jesus would say, then this is a real danger for you. It's a huge danger for you. If you're serious about the faith thing. It's a real serious danger for you. And look at some of the images that he uses when he talks about this. Things are just commonplace. He talks about cups that were, you know, ceremonial washing for cups and utensils and things that were eaten with. He talks about tombs in order to communicate his understanding of human nature and the human heart. See, whitewashed tombs. Okay, he says whitewashed tombs. Let me kind of draw a parallel. Imagine if you, you, you took a tomb and you put beautiful siding on it and you put like a, like a nice you know, roof, I don't know, some sort of nice expensive roof, and you put windows in it and you put a door and you put garden and sprinkler and all these sorts of things. Why would that be odd? Because you're giving the impression that someone's living inside, right? You're trying to cover up the reality that someone's dead inside there. That's this idea here. You would be doing it in order to make others think there's life inside and not death. See, it's not just that religious people mess up and they're inconsistent. Everyone's inconsistent. It's not just that they're neglecting justice and mercy and all these important things. It's the idea that they give a tithe of their spice. That's like a minor itty bitty tiny little financial thing, but that's an outward thing. That's seen. And they do that, like putting, you know, shingles on and the siding and the, in order to give the impression that there's really life going on on the inside. Why? In order to convince people how faithful they must be in the big things. If you see me being faithful in something small, 
by doing something really small, I'm probably being faithful in something large. But that's my motive is to deceive in that way if I do it that way. So why would someone whitewash a tomb? To distract from death. To distract from decay. Here's the point. Hypocrisy is not just a failure to live up to what you inspire to. Right? We, who does? Everyone. No, no one lives up to what they inspire to. The core of hypocrisy is one idea. Deception. That's hypocrisy. It's not just failing to live up to something that you want to or that you're trying to. That's not being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who intends to deceive by some outward appearance. Sometimes, though, unconscious even to the person. See, we do this, don't we? We do this all the time. I might deceive you to get you to think that I'm better than I am. Um, you ever do this? You ever, you ever hide your secret dislike from someone by kind of like a polite smile, maybe a coworker or someone like that? Um, do you ever pretend to, to help someone, but inwardly you're kind of hoping they fail? You're hoping the project doesn't make it to the market. You're hoping that whatever it is that they're you know, pursuing really kind of gets tripped up. You ever portray yourself as, as loving, kind, but, but inside you know you're full of, uh, of judgment? Of selfishness. See, I may even convince myself of my motives in some of those things. I may think I'm devout or I'm loving or I'm kind. Here's the point. I can be hypocritical without even knowing it. Um, There was an interesting study that was done by, by medical students, students training to become physicians and doctors and medical students were, were asked if they thought it was improper for politicians to accept gifts from lobbyists. Okay. Medical students said, Oh, 80, 85% of them said, yes, that's inappropriate. Politicians should not accept gifts from lobbyists. When they were asked whether they thought it was improper for physicians, what they were training to be to accept gifts from drug companies, the number dropped to 46%. (laughs) Why is that? Because we don't even know the the degree to which hypocrisy is inside of us. This is what Jesus keeps going after. He keeps saying, if you think you don't have hypocrisy, you're probably the worst case. (laughs) If you're aware of your hypocrisy, that's a good step. But it's one of the most dangerous things in our lives. Okay, so where does that leave us? This is like not very good news here. Hypocrisy is so deadly It inflicts even the most sincere, the most devout religious person, and it hides from us. It's like a blind spot. If if hypocrisy is ever going to hide in my life, it's going to be in my blind spot. So that means that right behavior will never work. It'll never get me. Because hypocrisy hides in right behavior. Hypocrisy works itself out in right behavior. So how do I get the good life? Well, here's possible solution if it's not the outside of the cup that matters then it's the this is not a hard one come on okay thank you that was that was not a question i don't want to answer yeah inside it's the inside of the cup that matters it's not the it's not the outward cup of behavior jesus is pointing out But the solution begins with an openness to the inside of the cup, which is the heart, to the truth about how messy I am, about how messy my heart, the inside really is. Um, John 8, 31, Jesus says, or we read this, 
to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And he says, then you, and there's this famous passage, then you will know the truth and the truth will will set you free. The truth will set you free, but you know what it'll do first to you? It'll make you really miserable. It will. Before the truth sets you free, it'll make you kind of miserable. Um, think of this. Imagine, imagine you go to pick up your car. Okay? You, you took it in to get you know, some work on it. And you walk in and the mechanic goes, your, your car must be taken care of by like a mechanical genius. It's in great shape. It's awesome. And then you get it and you drive away and you realize that you're almost at a brake fluid and you almost get into an accident and die. And you come back to him and you go, why did you, why did you tell me the truth about my car? And your mechanic goes, well, I, people get kind of upset when I say their car is not working right. I, I want this to be a safe place. I want you to feel good about, you know, your car and all that. And you say, no, when it comes to my car, I want the truth, right? Or suppose you go to your doctor and you get a physical and he says, you're, you're like a specimen of health. I mean, you're like, a, like an Olympian. I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but you're phenomenal. You're great. So you go home and you're walking up the stairs and you collapse from like having a heart attack and, and you go in and, and you find out you're like one jelly donut away from, you know, the Grim Reaper and, and, and you almost died. You go, why, why didn't you, why didn't you tell me the truth? You go, ah, people get kind of upset when I tell them they're not in good shape. And, you know, I want you to feel good about yourself. I, I want this to be a safe, I want this to be a safe place for you. You say the same thing. You say, when it comes to my health, I want to know the truth. Do we want to know the truth about our person, our inside self, our soul? See, this is the hardest question for me. I say I do, but what if I'm the doctor? What if I'm the mechanic? Inside's easy to hide. See, one thing that we're called to do in Scripture is to engage in an ancient discipline called confession. It's an ancient discipline. Confession to one another. Really interesting. The book of James, James chapter 5, verse 16. The half-brother of Jesus writes this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be whole. Here's what's interesting to me. James seems to be saying there's a connection between confession and wholeness. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, um, every time you sin... You fracture yourself. Every time you sin, it divides your soul or it fractures you. Let me give you an example. When I, when I sin by, by, let's say, hating you, talking bad about you, gossiping about you, but I do it behind your back, and I don't want you to know that, what do I do? Well, I hide it, right? I hide it with my body, my face and my appearance, my tone of voice. I conceal what's going on in my heart and my mind. Right? I represent something different outwardly than that's going on inwardly. And I divide myself. See, by that one act right there. But it, it goes on further. I don't want to think of myself as someone who's, you know, maintains unforgiveness or I'm petty or vengeful or anything like that. Um, so I split my thoughts off from truth again. And I go on dividing separating, fragmenting myself. Think about how much work, how much effort goes into trying to put on every day that everything's okay, everything's fine, everything's healthy, I'm really doing all right. So I go on fracturing my soul. See, this is why honest 
self-examination and transparent confession brings me back to wholeness. When I confess what I've done to you, I come in line with sometimes a very horrible truth, the, the painful truth that I'm a gossip or, or that I'm passive-aggressive or that I'm dishonest or that I'm unkind. But that's what it takes to be whole, is to come in line with that through confession. There have always been followers of Jesus who, who, who have sought this ancient way of practicing um, self-examination, transparent confession. In the early 1900s, in fact, there was, there was a movement called the Oxford Groups. The Oxford Groups, um, groups of Christians who, 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 who tried to recapture these ancient practices of uh, honest introspection and transparent confession and that sort of thing. There was an, era, an American businessman named Roland Hazard. And, and he struggled with alcoholism for many, many years. And, and he sought treatment from the famous uh, Swiss psychiatrist, Carl Jung. And Carl Jung said, you're basically hopeless. I don't, there's no hope for you like most alcoholics. And he says, your only hope, if there's any, is some sort of a religious experience. Maybe go find a religious group and have a religious conversion or something. Well, Hazard eventually found his way to one of these Oxford groups. And he found the, the power to live a sober life. And that brought this chain of connections and relationships that, that eventually led him to William G. Wilson, better known as Bill W., who, who partially, under Hazard's influence, became the co-founder of, of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, which expressed these same principles, honest introspection, outward confession, of these Oxford groups in a somewhat secularized version through through the 12 steps. See, these 12 steps, here's the point I want us to see, something that's absolutely revolutionized the world. These 12 steps flowed out of a stream initiated by a guy named Jesus 1,900 years earlier, which embraced the way of self-examination and transparent confession. And maybe the greatest realization that, that this guy got and these guys got was what's at the core of the gospel. And that's it. You're helpless. You'll never, ever do this on your own. You'll never be able to get to the good life by becoming the good person on your own efforts. Because what it'll look like is what? Outward image management, which just embraces hypocrisy, which cuts me off and fractures myself. I'll never be able to do it on my own. The truth that Jesus talks about when he says the truth will set you free has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from outside yourself it's not your own efforts to become the good person and reach the good life this is what the apostle paul was wrestling with you remember this remember the statement that the apostle paul made in romans seven fifteen. he said um i don't understand what i do he said the thing that i want to do i don't do and the thing i don't want to do i keep on doing and he's wrestling with this reality of, man, I'm trying to kind of fix it myself. I'm trying to do the image management. I'm trying to, if I change the behavior, maybe the inside will change. And you realize it, it doesn't happen. Because, of course, who we are flows out from the inside. And I, I can't control, I can't get to the inside of me. I can get to the outside, but I just can't get to the inside. And so here's the gospel, you guys. This, this is the convicting and comforting truth of the gospel that nothing else besides the gospel embraces. Here's the convicting part. 
There's never been anyone like Jesus who has ever diagnosed hypocrisy so accurately and denounced it, hypocrisy, with more power, with more anger, with more judgment. I don't know about you, but I don't feel very good because I'm a, I got hypocrisy in areas of my life. But here's the comforting part of the gospel. There's also never been anyone like Jesus who has ever offered hypocrites themselves hope. That's good because I'm a hypocrite at times. I need hope. That's that's the gospel. Let me let me conclude with some words by C.S. Lewis. Toward the end of his book, Mere Christianity, he's talking about this reality here, this whole thing of. How do we do this? How do I become the kind of person who I'm made to be so I can experience the good life when I've got this problem of hypocrisy? He says the Christian way, meaning the Jesus way, he says it's different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, oh good, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you my self. My own will. That's the internal part. My own will will become yours. See, that's the gospel. That's the only solution to my hypocrisy, and that's the only solution to your hypocrisy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we hunger for and thirst for righteousness, like, like those people in the Beatitudes. And yet we also know the reality that we can't achieve it on our own. As, as much as we seek it, as much as we want it, as much as we desire it, we, we remember Paul's words that at the same time, I, I, I'm a divided being. I'm a split, fractured person. There's parts of me that want it. There's parts of me that pursue the opposite. But God, if you would give me yourself, if you would breathe into my life, if Christ's will would become mine, if I would have the mind of Christ, if, it would, if it's your Holy Spirit's power, all of a sudden new life flows out of me. And the picture that Jesus used, like, like streams of living water out in the desert coming up from something that's so dead and so dry. God, that's what we long for, Lord. We, we long to be people who experience that kind of real life inward transformation, God, so that we can become the kind of people who can experience the good life regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the ruin that happens around us, regardless of, of the suffering that we might encounter, regardless of the loss that we might have to walk into, regardless of the loneliness that we feel at moments. We can experience the good life because the good person, Christ, has come inside of us. 
And Lord, that's what we long for. Would you please apply these truths to our life this week, God, where there are places where we need to step into honest introspection and then confession to people around us. Lord, would you motivate us to do that, that we might be whole, that we might not walk around with fractured lives. That's horrible. I hate that. It's misery. I want to be an integrated being. I want to have integrity. I want to have wholeness. And I only have that through Christ. So thank you, God, that you make this a reality for us. It's not our own work and effort that does it. So apply this to our lives this week. God, thank you for this community. Thank you that I have people in this room who love me enough to tell me the truth and also love me enough to encourage me when that truth hurts so badly. God, thank you for community. Would you, would you allow us to be people who notice others around us and reach out with the love of Christ, God? We pray this in his name. Amen.